0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to The Range on the Believe Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Ralph Irvin, and today we are talking to a man whose professional life is centered on creation. Taking an idea, figuring out how to make it physically possible, and then executing its construction. He is now a product manager with Mizuno and it is where he started out just out of college. It's a pleasure to welcome Chris Voschel to the reins. Chris,
1: it's great to talk to you. It's always good to talk to you, Ralph. Looking forward to it.
0: Well, let's start at the very beginning in golf. When did you start playing?
1: I started playing at eleven years old. It was one of those things where I grew up, I was I I was fascinated with baseball. Atlanta Braves fan. 11 years old is 1991. I was born in 1980. So 91 was that season of the Braves going worst to first, getting to the World Series. So baseball was always my passion, but my dad was a golfer. So he was the one who said the summer of, uh, summer of uh, I guess it was, that was 92. He said, well, I'm signing you up for a golf clinic. And it was the kind of thing where I was like, that's not cool. I don't want to do that. But then I met a couple friends in it and I was hooked almost immediately. So I've been golfing ever since
0: and you weren't just playing you were a competitive player
1: yeah i always try to uh i feel like i I have Continued to evolve and continue to work at it and get better and better as I go. So, I was a high school player. Um, You know, we, I was at a very small high school that didn't have a team until I was there. And I helped to form a team there. So, um, played number one on that, which was good. And then went off to school. And there I was, uh, I basically, I'd like to say I owned the intramurals there (laughs) or whatever the club the club golf was but ever since then i've been trying to k- keep my handicap down i like to play competitively some of the uh, georgia state golf association events some of the us AM, us mid am stuff like that I try to qualify for some of those just to keep the uh the competitive juices flowing
0: you studied engineering in college and then you had to find a job right talk us through that process that everybody understands but in this case it worked out pretty
1: well you know, it's, it's one of those interesting ones where I, I started school as, you know, all through high school, I was always a math person, science person. So engineering was the right path to go. And I went right in as an electrical engineer, thinking, you know, I always heard electricals the toughest engineering major. So I was like, cool, bring, bring on the challenge. I quickly realized it wasn't what I was excited about, you know, drawing circuits and stuff like that. It didn't really excite me. And mm-hmm. quickly, I switched over to uh uh, civil engineering and ultimately an engineering science degree, which is a little bit of a almost like a broad stroke engineering degree where I took some classes within the civil, within materials, within electrical, within mechanical. So, really, a lot of different things. And then you get out of school and it's like, well, what do you do with that? And I was always someone who, again, I, I started golf at 11. I wanted to, I played golf all through college and I had this dream of. How can I get into golf? So I, you know, hit the websites at the time where it was in the back in the day of monster.com looking for, you know, what, what jobs are available. And, you know, it's always, I've considered myself very blessed, very fortunate in terms of where I ended up, but I came across a job posting at Mizuno and here I am. So it was, it was really fortunate.
0: <laughs> well, you came across a job posting that was uh, a little beyond you
1: that's exactly right the full story (laughs) is i came across a job posting for a club engineer so you know you the typical job posting and this is the college student the college graduate dilemma of you read the job you want and it says it requires 10 years experience all this industry knowledge all these things that you just straight up don't have so being a little bit more aggressive, I wanna just try to push it a little bit. So I did apply for that job, even though I knew I was grossly underqualified. (laughs) But I got reached out to from the from some of the guys at Mizuno and they said, you know, no to that position but there is another position that's potentially going to be available where they were opening up a testing center at the country club of the South in John's Creek, Georgia. And that was something where they were going to put up basically a test lab, similar to like we have in Osaka, Japan, where they have a robotic golfer, um, also all the measuring equipment, all the lab stuff where you can buy competitor clubs, cut them up, test them. And they were looking for more of a junior engineer to fill a role there. So I was fortunate enough to get to interview for that. And I got that. And from there, I've continued to evolve within my career at Mizuno and now I can probably say 17 17 years in I'm finally qualified for the job that I applied for way back in the day
0: (laughs) (laughs) when you're testing golf clubs like that it changes the perspective for a lot of people and how they view them Mm -hmm. but did you think of golf from an engineering perspective as you were maturing and in college
1: it's a great question um I'd say I was always an equipment junkie. Like I always was fascinated by equipment. Um, you know, my dad and I used to always go to the golf store, look at different clubs, study head shapes. Like, look, I I knew what I liked and I knew what I didn't like. You know, I was a, I was a scratch golfer heading into college too, so I had you know decent decent playing abilities. I would say that I. I had opinions of clubs, but they were based strictly off playing. And it wasn't, I had never taken the time to really break down the engineering of them and understand it from that level. So that's where the testing role was a really eye opening one because it's almost like when we do this testing, I know what I like, I know what I don't like. But let's understand the why of that, like put data to what you like and what you don't like, whether that's a moment of inertia value, whether that's a head length value, whether it's a CG location, all of these things. So this role really opened my eyes to a lot of things that I had opinions on and gave me and took them from opinions to here's the math of what I like and what I don't like and what will work in golf clubs for me.
0: I imagine that was an eye-opening experience, but there were probably tons of them as you experienced Mm -hmm. different things. And again, that perspective started to change that it's like, okay, this club that I don't like the look of, suddenly, whoa, I sure like how it feels. Why do I like how it feels when it's so ugly? I mean, that sort of thing.
1: You're you're exactly right. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, when you're someone who is just going to the store and hitting a couple demo products, you never really get the full breadth of of clubs out there. You know, I think today it's maybe a little bit easier to do a a test where I get, you know, a seven iron from 10 different manufacturers and try that out with a lot of the interchangeable stuff. You can do that Mm -hmm. back in the day. That wasn't really a thing. Say, you know, I had hit every product and understood what I liked and what I didn't wasn't really the case. So the initial like litmus test was really looks. And that's somewhere where Mizuno was always stood out. You know, the Mizuno clubs always looked the part to me. 14s and 29s 33s 30s all those classic mp irons that so many people know about were something that drew me to mizuno where to the point there where i actually was playing mizuno before i even started here so yeah it's very eye-opening to then come in and then be able to get to try everything you know i love some of my favorite days are the days where the research and testing team will call us up and say hey i need i need you for three hours on monday because we got 27 irons i want to understand everything you like and don't like about all of them and collect data on all of them so that's been a really cool and eye-opening thing to to again to understand product at a more intimate level at
0: some point you go from okay this is fun this is a cool job to wow i'm really learning about technology to your brain starts to think how can i make this better. Mm-hmm. How long in did that, I mean, was that something that was quick or did that develop over time that you really started to think in that creative way?
1: I'll, I'll say it developed over time. And that's one thing that I love about how Mizuno is actually structured because by starting at the uh, junior engineer position, it's almost more like an apprenticeship than anything because you quickly come in and you realize how little, you know, about golf equipment. Like, again, I thought I knew a lot about equipment. And then all of a sudden I'm seeing all these different measurements, all these different mass properties that I I don't even know what they necessarily mean even. So what I'll say is the first two to three years, it's just information overload. It's just learning. It's measuring uh, base almost you don't want to say reverse engineering but it kind of is you know i'd read the literature on the newest irons by whichever manufacturer understand what they're saying and then try to put numbers to what they were saying to see if it worked or it didn't work so i think for the first little bit it's all data collection And then eventually it gets to the point of, okay, well, now that I understand we're trying to replace, let's say, for example, um, MP57 was one of the first irons I got to work on. Uh, I knew what it was replacing, which was the MP60. So I understand what that club did. And I understand the mass properties of it, the center gravity location, the MOI, the head size, all these different specs. How can I improve that? So unless you have that really grounded base of not just the looks and feel, but every bit about a club, you're not going to really understand what are your levels that you can improve and what are the things you should look to improve. So it's, it's a long process that, you know, obviously a kid coming out of uh, engineering school is ready to take on the world thinking tomorrow I can design the next great golf club. But unless you have that core knowledge, I think you're really doing yourself a disservice. So I love the, the, the train and the path that, that my career set up, started off on.
0: I was gonna ask, what was the first club that you had a chance to work on? Yeah. <laughs> what What was it like to get that opportunity to transition into? Okay, now I get to contribute in into building this.
1: Well, it's funny. I'll I'll back up a step because I skipped a club that I worked on first because I talked about the first iron I worked on. So the actual first club I got to engineer was one that you know, if you get out Google, you can see it doesn't necessarily fit the mold of a Mizuno. Arguably one of the ugliest clubs ever. It was a, pro- a putter project called the it, it, funny name. It was called Drano, and the whole <laughs> whole idea of it was how can we make the highest moment of inertia putter? And this is back in the day of if you remember the Ping Doc Seventeen, the Scotty Cameron Futura, mm-hmm. a lot of you know extreme designs to get massive MOI. So the idea was how can we create something that's very high tech that lives with most MOI out there. So if you look up the uh, Mizuno Drano putters, it was a really cool construction where it was a aluminum body. So aluminum face and then sole part, composite, almost tubes And then stainless steel back piece, those composite tubes attached to that aluminum. So what that resulted in is a club that had a really high mode of inertia, a really deep center of gravity. And the Drano name kind of fit because it looked like plumbing equipment, like with these tubes. So it was It was a funny project, but that was the first one I got to work on. And while I'll say it's not the one I'm most proud of because it's not the prettiest thing out there, and never got any tour acceptance or anything like, you know, we never even tried to get tour acceptance. Engineering wise, it was really good. Like it hit all the mass property targets we were looking for. And it's a golf club that performed, you know, if you could get over the look, you could get some really good thing, great things out of it. From there, the the fun thing with Mizuno was when can you really get into what Mizuno is known for, and that's the iron world. So Mm -hmm. MP57 was my first set of irons I got to work on. And that is a more intimidating process just because, you know, work on a Drano putter, even the name says you don't have to be too worried. It's not super serious. But when you see that MP mark on a Mizuno golf club, There's a level of expectation that comes with it in terms of look, feel, performance, all of these things. So that was an intimidating thing to try to say that something I get to work on gets this world-renowned badge on it. So with those, um, I'll say that, yes, that was my project. But there was a lot of hand-holding going on. So David Llewellyn, who was my boss at the time, Masao the guy who was in charge of uh, Mizuno uh, US R&D, as well as many of the engineers in Japan, a guy named Kazu, a craftsman named, uh, we call him KJ. All of these people were hand-holders to, to make sure I wasn't going to mess up something that was going to get this iconic branding.
0: As you mentioned all these different people, you're, you're based in Georgia, but at that point, you're really probably working a lot with Japan, or are they two separate tracks where you're kind of sharing ideas, but you're supposed to be working on your own?
1: So it's, it's interesting you ask that. So we have, when we do a project, in, um, whether it's in Japan or in the U.S., we have co-engineers on it. So there'll be an engineer from the U.S. side, an engineer from the Japan side, and we truly do work together on that project. It's, it's kind of a pain for communication, but it's good for getting a lot done. The fact that our clocks are literally flipped, you know, oftentimes we're exactly 12 hours difference. So mm-hmm. if I can work on something from 8 to 6 on my time, then at 8 o'clock in Japan time, they pick it up and start working on it, developing it and advancing it further. And we almost joke that it's the file that never sleeps because it keeps evolving. So that helps us in terms of having not only multiple eyes on it, but also helps us speed up the process too, because we have two engineers working on it almost constantly. So that helps you know, bounce ideas off each other, that helps it evolve quicker. And ultimately the final product is something that's gonna work for everybody as well. So it's a really cool process.
0: I'm envisioning an interesting parallel dynamic. Okay. Um, you can look back on work that you did and say, that was really good, but look at what I'm doing now. This is so much better. Mm-hmm. And it is it's a lot like the golf game that you're a scratch golfer going into college. But I bet right now you feel like you're a much better golfer, mm-hmm. even if it's not because of the physical capabilities, because you just know so much more. I mean, I got to imagine that's what that evolution's like.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, on the on the engineering side, you know, the first project, it's like you don't know how many things you don't know about what makes a club good. Every club is getting better. And it's and, and again, that doesn't just speak to Mizuno. You look at how the industry has evolved all the product out there is really good. It's just making sure it fits you properly. So what's great is when you, uh, when you take a project, I'll, I'll use, for example, like the, the JPX Tour model that started on the JPX 900 Tour, evolved to the 919 and now the 921. Each model, it's not a reinventing of the wheel necessarily. It's taking that knowledge and what you learn from that product from the first round of development, Plus, now you have consumer insights on it, you have tour insights on it, so you have this whole other pool of knowledge that you can throw on top of that project to go ahead and make the next version an even better iteration of that. So each project, you get smarter and smarter, and you have things you can lean back on, things you can rely on, remember that you did great, and you know ultimately, every product is better than the last.
0: It's perfect timing that you mentioned JPX, because I was going to ask about that, and There's a lot of things to discuss with the JPX. One is the engineering and the styling, but also this is, I believe that was the first model that really came out where it was co-branded Japan and the US that they were going to use the same name and they were going in the same direction.
1: Yeah, so uh, particularly on the game improvement side of the world, we had MX in the States and JPX in Japan. So, you know, two very different uh, design philosophies, two very different looks, two very different even sets of technology built into them. So, with the start of JPX, that was when Mizuno took a step to try to be. Instead of reacting to the market, it was almost anticipating where we were headed in in terms of the golf world. So with the JPX, or sorry, with the MX before that, the twenty threes, the twenty fives, MX two hundred, these were golf clubs that were traditionally very uh, forged and very, I'd almost say, traditional processes. Slightly over oversized heads, a little bit stronger loft, but really no big efforts to increase ball speed and look at distance. And that's where it's something where the Japan market typically has been, call it four or five years ahead of the U.S. market in terms of some of the technologies that are used. And a lot of that was based off of the Japan price points were so high that they could put a lot of different things that we didn't have, you know, at our disposal in the States. So, one of the big things that was happening in Japan around, I'd call it around 2008, 2009, was the invention of the high COR irons, where COR and ball speed was always a buzzword on the driver's side but it wasn't that popular on irons. So the JPX line was the introduction of high COR to Mizuno on the iron world. And that's something that now I believe we were kind of the first in the industry on the in the Western world to have that. And now you see that's common across mm-hmm. all brands. So you see everybody else chasing ball speed on irons. And with JPX, that was cool because it let us reinvent, because it wasn't mx 300 or sorry, mx 400 like the next version of that by rebranding it bringing some technology from overseas it allowed us to completely reinvent that line and that's what's cool about it is mizuno has gone from a brand that has the perception of being just for better players just small heads just forged blades to now selling a lot of golf clubs in the jpx line I bet 80% of our sales come from JPX, and that's the more game improvement side of the world. It speaks to that side of the market, but also speaks to how we've evolved as engineers and as a company.
0: As somebody who picked up golf after college, which is the case with me, Mm there is an intimidation factor when you look at certain clubs, when you look at blades. I mean, I remember the first set of blades that were made for Tiger Woods Mm -hmm. that had a Nike swoosh on them. And I thought, if somebody gave me those, I'd put them on the wall. They're beautiful. Right. There's no way I'd want to try to hit them because I know I couldn't. Yep. And that's the thing is when you see that JPX club, you feel like, no, this is inviting to a higher handicap player. This is going to be friendlier to hit. It doesn't scare me.
1: Yeah, there's so much mental in this game. You know, it's the look at address, whether, whether something suits your eye or it doesn't. It doesn't matter what handicap level you are. If you're brand new to the game, you'd think, oh, I don't have the knowledge. No, I can't hit this. But when you sit down a slightly larger footprint, a little bit thicker sole versus that muscle back with a razor thin top line, you get it right away. This is going to be easier to find the middle. And, you know, that's going to encourage a a more consistent swing, allow you to swing a little bit more freely as well. So there's absolutely some mental parts to the game and to club design, some of the tricks you want to try to do to make sure that it speaks to the right players in terms of the look at address. But then if you can hide technologies and like sneak technologies in the better player's world, that's where you've really seen club engineering take off in the last number of years.
0: You mentioned uh, the cost with with the advancement of technology in Japan, and this isn't specific to Mizuno, it's to everybody, Mm -hmm. but it's an interesting thing that separates golf from other areas is if you talk about fashion, something, you know, a Louis Vuitton purse, It's expensive because it's a Louis Vuitton purse. Right. (laughs) When you're talking about golf equipment, it's expensive because it took a lot to make. Mm -hmm. It's not because you're saying, this is our premium tour iron, so we're going to charge more. It's because in order to build this particular club, it's more expensive. And a lot of times, the the most expensive club is something along the super game improvement area yeah. where you've put in all this gadgetry to help that player that really can't get the ball in the air or whatever.
1: I think that's a great point. I mean, I'd like to think to compare the golf industry more to the automotive industry than I would like the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. Cause you're right. You know, name brand only does so much in, in a world where there's so much information at your fingertips, whether it's a foresight track man, you know, any sort of launch where you can measure if you slap an expensive price tag on something that doesn't perform, the consumer gets it. And the consumer is like, I can get performance somewhere else. So ultimately, a lot of times you're seeing prices increase. It's because there's so much measurable stuff happening in terms of ball speed, spin rates, launch angles, carry distance, you know, face closure rotation, like all these other things that are, that are evolved in, have evolved in a fitting world. We're almost forced to put more expensive, more exotic construction materials, all those things into the clubs to make sure that we're going to be able to check the proper boxes when you get into that launch monitor, when you get into the fitting bay. So ultimately, yeah, the cost has gone up, but the cost has only gone up because the product has gotten that much better.
0: One thing that is very big with Mizuno. One thing that, that you're really known for is the fact that you transition from model to model mm-hmm. very seamlessly, which allows you to have mixed sets. Yeah. It allows you to custom build the set to fit your eye and your feel. Can you give us some insight into that process? Because you're not just in- designing an individual right. line of irons. You're really designing a whole array that has to work together.
1: You're exactly right. That's something that as, as we've seen the importance and the benefit of the fitting world, that's a change that we've made and evolved to over the years. I'd say the place where it really became like a stated mission statement with the MP18 line, that was the first time where instead of saying, "Okay, we need these three iron models, it used to be what we would do is you know you have a spreadsheet, you have here's your loss, here's your offsets, here's your head size. And it's like you make sure they make sense on a spreadsheet. With MP18, spreadsheet was thrown out of the window and now it's let's pretend you're in a fitting bay. How can we make a set How can we make the perfect set for any individual person where they select models, not just from this one set of irons, but from any of these irons? So with that, that took a total rethinking in terms of how we set up all the specs, how we set up offset values, how we set up head weights, shaft offerings, all of these things to take a more holistic, not saying an iron, uh, an iron model approach, but an iron line approach. So with the MP18, there was the uh, muscle back, there was a split cavity, there was the the, uh, MMC, which is our multi-material, our tie muscle design, and a fly height, and all of these were designed basically off the same chassis. So it's like you start with the same head shape. So the six iron looks almost the exact same at address, regardless of the technology you have behind it. So then what happens is you can now mix and match wherever you want throughout the set, and then it becomes the fitter's job and the launch monitor's job to tell you, okay, I see that when loft got to 27 degrees, you started to have this different gapping. So, you know, you lost that 12 degrees between clubs. So now maybe you need to look at something else, whether that's more height, more ball speed, more something else. And that's something that started with MP18, has worked its way into the MP20, the JPX line even with the Hot Metal, Hot Metal Pro, Forged and Tour, all of those now have that same design philosophy as well to make sure that we don't want you to buy the set on the wall. We want you to buy the set that's gonna work for you the best. And oftentimes that's a mix of all of these. So our wall sets are just that. That's for you to look at, go to our fit cart. That's where the (laughs) magic's gonna happen. I'm gonna give
0: you a chance to geek out here. Like really geek out because I know that there are people that have some of these questions that aren't geeks and some that are. I wanna talk metal. Okay. Because when we're talking about irons from various manufacturers, there are many terms thrown about, and mm-hmm. some people get it. Some people under they understand what's being said, but they don't really know what it means. Yep. So I want to run through, um, just talk about what sure. this is. Some of this may may be really elementary. So we'll we'll start yes. there. When people hear cast irons, yep. What does it mean from Mizuno?
1: So what a cast iron and cast is usually, you know, the, the opposite of that is forged it basically two ways to get metal into the shape of a golf club. You can either forge it or cast it. The difference there is how it gets there. A forged iron stays in the solid state at all time, meaning you have a solid billet. Uh, if There's, one right behind me. I know I know we're on a podcast, so you can't necessarily see it, but I literally have a picture of a forged billet right behind me. It's a cylinder of steel that is then hammered and worked into the shape of a golf club. Casting, on the other hand, is a is a liquid poured into a mold that then solidifies and becomes a solid. So that's the big difference between the two. One lives in the solid state the whole time, and one is poured and then cools into a solid state. The big di- difference you're going to feel between those is the grain structure. So the grain structure of a forging is more continuous. It's longer because you have the actual working of the material. So traditionally, it's going to vibrate a little bit longer on a casting because of that core. What you're going to have is you're going to have, a, I don't want to call them imperfections, but air bubbles within it the benefit of casting is you can work in more three dimensions because that mold can you know a hammer doesn't have to enter and exit so you can get a little bit more extreme geometry but the downfall is it's not going to vibrate as true and vibrate as consistently or vibrate as long so you're traditionally not going to get as much feedback to the player
0: that's a perfect summation it goes to show that there's times that casting could be really good but there's times that forging is always going to be better Let's talk about something that if people are looking at Mizuno clubs are going to see this word,
1: chromoly. Chromoly is a really interesting material. So it's a chromoly, like we use multiple versions of chromoly. We use a chromoly 4120, 4140, 4130. It's, it's It's a classification of materials, and chromoly is actually short for for. I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this word chromium molybdenum. Uh, basically, two elements within the uh, periodic table. The benefit of chromoly is its strength, but also its malleability, meaning its ability to be bent. So, w- when you're talking high COR golf clubs, and you're talking distance, and you're talking thin faces, you want the strongest material possible. You know, a 174 stainless steel is one of the one of the strongest steels out there miraging steel are extremely strong so you can go very thin on those the trouble with that is when you go so thin you lose the ability to bend and i talked earlier about you know if the club's not fit for you, you're not going to be able to benefit from all the technology. So what Chromali has allowed us to do is go ultra thin on a face, but allow for a neck that can be bent to be custom fit. So that's the benefit of a Chromali is that you get all the performance of that strength, but then the malleability allows for us to custom fit it for you.
0: And then you teed up my next question because you said it a bunch, but when somebody hears something like, 1025e carbon steel or all the different versions of chromoly
1: yep what does that mean so uh, we typically use a 1025 carbon steel uh you'll see from other competitors a 1020 a 1030 1035 what the what those last two digits and same with the chromoly i talk about 4140 4120 those last two digits are amounts of other materials in them so speaking to 1025 it's what you call a mild carbon steel. So that 25 is a 0.025% carbon. So there's more or less carbon in it, depending on higher or lower. Uh, amounts of that material. So a 1025 has less carbon than a 1035. Typically, the lower that number, the softer that metal. So a 1035 is probably going to feel a little bit harder. It's going to be a little bit tougher to forge, a little bit tougher to bend. 1020 is going to be a little bit softer. So ultimately, it's going to bend a little bit easier. We choose a 1025 because we feel like 1025 is that perfect balance of it's soft enough. It's not the softest out there. But it's not going to lose its shape over time, because if you get too soft, then you say you're hitting your irons off the mat and you hit your irons off the toe, whatever, they could start to lose their spec. So that's where we choose a 1025 for its blend of strength and being soft enough, and then allow us to use our processes of grain flow forging and our harmonic impact technology to make sure the feel and the vibrations are right.
0: Bet you didn't think you were going to be talking metallurgy today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's good. That means I paid attention in class, right?
0: <laughs> if someone was to come to you and say, what is it that makes Mizuno irons special? What would be your first reaction?
1: I think there's a there's a lot of answers to that. To me, I think a lot of people think of Mizuno irons as special because of the history but to me, it's a little bit more than that. What, what makes Mizuno Iron special to me is the. I'm gonna I'm, let me make sure I word this right. They're very forward thinking, even though they don't look it, is what I'll say. So there's almost a nod to tradition, but there's always something new engineering wise going on. So if you look at, uh, I'll use I'll use our 1025E. We use a 1025E, that E stands for elite, it's a pure version of 1025. We don't just use a standard 1025. We're always looking at a better better version of that material that we could use to get more and more out of it. Our forging process has continued to evolve over the years, even though forging is something that goes back to the middle ages, they were forging metal back then. But we have evolved the forging process to be better, tighter, more consistent, be able to get more out of it. So to me, what's great about Mizuno is, and our irons in particular, is that we honor a lot of the tradition in terms of what you want, what you want to look at, what you want to see it address, what you want to feel. But at the same time, they're constantly evolving and getting better and better and having more and more technology put into clubs, even though you don't know it on the surface.
0: You're an engineer. (laughs) but Clearly. (laughs) But... When it comes to marketing, people are looking at Mizuno are going to see Chris Voschel mm-hmm. because you're out there and you're selling the product. You're promoting right. the technology inside. So when we go to that marketing side, how tough is it to express, hey, Mizuno is more than irons. We have every mm-hmm. club in the bag and it's pretty darn good.
1: Right. What What's interesting about Mizuno and how we work is we've always been an engineer engineering first company and that goes beyond just golf that goes to you know going back to our running shoes our baseball equipment a lot of stuff a lot of the direction we take everything comes from the engineering side comes from what can we do we're a engineering first product first company as opposed to a marketing first company so where I landed in my role is in, an interesting one because you know, I came from the engineering side. Typically, it's like engineering and marketing. you try to keep as far away as possible because there's, it's like speaking two different languages. But that's what's fun about Mizuno is the encouragement to speak almost overly technical and very in engineering terms when we talk about our equipment. We're never going to be the loudest and the boldest. Like when you look at a Mizuno ad, you're not seeing... X number more yards. You're not seeing all these bold marketing claims. You see more technical stories from ours. You'll see us talking about, like on our new driver, an uh, SAT 2041 Beta Titanium face. That might not mean a thing to you, but we're that's the language we choose to speak in because that's what we do and that's how we work. So it's a little bit more of a modest approach to everything. And that's what's been fun about You know, one of the things I've tried to push as I've gone into this position is keeping that engineering first mindset, especially when you talk to the driver side of the world, because the driver side is the quote unquote flashiest side It's the big stick. It's one where the most bold marketing claims happen. However, I don't want us to lose what we are. So we are engineers first. We are materials. We are processes. We are history. We are numbers. So when you see us talk about our products, our woods even, we speak in terms of numbers. What's cool is I talked a little bit before about, you know, the in how the fitting world has become so data-driven as opposed to marketing-driven that now hopefully you get some, some, understanding that this isn't marketing fluff. There's actual like data behind all these. So when you get to the launch monitor, it proves itself out. So if you keep speaking in those languages, I think it's building trust. And you've seen Mizuno Woods and on uh, wedges and other categories continue to evolve over the years. And that's because of us taking what we are and how we speak from Mizuno and applying it to not just irons, but applying it to the entire market.
0: I think that uh, is apparent when you talk about the drivers in the fact that a lot of companies might simply say, this is our new driver and this is our new driver that has a draw bias. Right. <laughs> and instead, you're saying, this one is weighted differently on the x-axis, this one's weighted
1: differently on the z-axis. That's a, that's a great example of, you know, our, our names literally come from how they were engineered. Our names aren't a flashy name that people will shout off the tee or whatever. So yeah, you're right, our STZ, our STX, our new drivers, they literally get their name because the Z is weighted primarily along the z-axis, the X on the x-axis that really speaks to probably about 1% of the golf world who knows what that means. But then that's our job. And that's my job to help communicate that. So to help uh, inform the golfers, to me, the more informed the golfer is when he goes into a fitting world, when he goes in, he's not going to choose a product because he saw his favorite tour player hit it. He's going to pick a product because he knows, Hey, that sounds like something that's going to help my game. So that's something that we always, to speak to with educate, 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 make sure we're going to speak in terms of uh, the benefits and why we did what we did. Because to me, the why is way more important than anything else.
0: We've seen a massive influx of players going to the course in the last year. Uh, New players, those returning to the game after a long absence. How do you think equipment can help these folks stay active in playing golf?
1: Yeah. And that's an awesome question because not only have we seen the game grow in terms of play but the one troubling trend that i've seen come out of it is from the equipment side we've sold more finished goods meaning not custom fit clubs than we had in years past as a percentage i think that speaks to players returning to the game not as knowledgeable you know there's this perception of i'm not good enough to be custom fit And I think that's a perception that I love to break because ultimately a better player can react to his equipment, a higher handicapper, someone who doesn't know the game, doesn't know his swing, can't react to his equipment. He's almost a victim of his equipment. So to me, One of the things we need to try to do is make sure all these new players understand the benefits of a custom fitting. Because, and again, from from the manufacturing side, we don't charge more for the custom fitting. We'd happily bend it to your lie angle, put the right shaft, the right grip on it for you to make sure it's going to work for you because clubs, they are expensive. So we don't want you to buy that one off the wall. We want you to like the one on the wall, but then how do we get that dialed into you? So from the equipment side of thing, I think the trend has been a lot of new players not getting custom fit and it needs to be the opposite
0: it's kind of like going to a restaurant and they've got a picture of a hamburger on the wall and it's like man that thing looks good but when you order it they're saying what do you
1: want on it right you can put whatever you want it doesn't have to be that picture yeah exactly we we want to make sure that it fits you we're putting a lot of technologies in again like we talked earlier the cost is up because of so many of the technologies that are involved If you don't have a club that's fit to you properly, you're not going to benefit from the higher moment of inertia. You're not necessarily going to benefit from, you know, the improved uh, deeper center of gravity if you're not delivering the club to the ball properly. So get the right shaft, get the right grip, get the right right length, right lie angle, and particularly the right set makeup. You don't need to buy all eight clubs necessarily. If you want to buy five iron through sand wedge, five iron through pitching wedge, great. That's awesome. And even new players who are intimidated when they walk up and see $1,000 on the wall, it can be $500 if you just buy evens or odds. We're happy to do that and build a custom set that works for you and lets you evolve your game into a place where then you feel more comfortable putting that bigger investment out there.
0: I've always felt, and it's gotten stronger, especially in the last year, is I firmly believe go and get the cheapest set of clubs you can until you've reached the point where you think about your golf game Uh and once you start thinking about your golf game you're ready to be custom fit yeah you can get something really cheap to figure out hey do i even like this do i like hitting a golf ball but (laughs) once you start thinking about your game you're ready to really put the attention towards it and improving it i
1: think that's a great point yeah Someone who's saying, I'm about to go golf for the first time, or my boss invited me to play in some scramble or something. That guy doesn't necessarily need to go spend a grand before he does that. He needs to make sure he's going to enjoy it. But once you get locked into this game, you and I both know it is addicting, and you want to make sure you're going to perform.
0: We always wrap up our talks here on The Range by jumping into the Wayback Machine. So for this, we're going to give you the full option. It could be your portfolio. It could be your own golf bag. Okay probably both, I'm going to guess, but tell us that one club that means the most to you. It may not even be something you're currently playing, Yeah. but you think back and it's like, that was, that was the beauty.
1: So I'll say the set of clubs like that I worked on and, and I got two, I have two answers to that. I'll, I'll, I'll I'll go back to that. So um, my dream always coming into the golf world was to work with Tiger. Like that, to, that would that was always the dreams. How do you work with Tiger? You know, as growing up, I'm that perfect age of it. My senior quote was, hello world. You know, it's like, how do you go back to Tiger Woods and try to be more like him? So my dream had always been to work with him, work with the best in the world. And one set of clubs that I worked on was the MP 62s. And when I was working on those clubs, I knew they were great golf clubs. The feel was there. The performance was there. And that's when Luke Donald would, you know, caught fire. And he was playing the MP62s and worked his way up to where he is literally the number one player in the world. So I have one golf club that's sitting on my shelf, like on, not in my office, but in my home, like by my TV. It's one of my display cases. I've got... My first Drano putter that's pretty nasty but then next to it there's a beautiful MP62 signed by Luke Donald number one like top player in the world which to me that was one of the coolest things and that's one of the like pieces that means the most to me another one on that is the um the JPX 900 tour that was a project that really it took a lot of convincing and that's almost where you know now I'm in a little bit more of a marketing role and that was me as an engineer, myself and David Llewellyn, who's my boss at the time, like working really hard to say, we think from the engineering side, we could do something and change the marketing in terms of the branding, how we could make a golf club that speaks to a different player. So, with the JPX tour, the 900 tour was the first time we did that, where our JPX line, traditionally our high tech, you know, game improvement COR line. How do we use some of the weighting techniques and dial that back for the better player? So, that JPX Tour, it's a one piece forging. It looks really cool. It looks mean. It doesn't look like an MP, you know, traditional golf club. And when that came out, um, the number of players that went right into it was unbelievable. And that was the first set of irons that I worked on that won some majors so i actually got multiple majors out of that so i actually have another thing in my little man cave down in my basement i've got i've got a jpx tour next to a player a non-contract guy who won four majors i can't necessarily talk about but uh (laughs) one using one of those irons and to me that's just to me it's still one of the coolest stories of how that club he found that club Put it in his bag because it was his favorite, not because anyone paid him or not because anyone even asked him to. He just said, "I like this the most." And then he went and won a PGA Championship, a U.S. Open, and then another U.S. Open, and then another PGA Championship. So it was pretty cool.
0: I wonder who that could be, uh,
1: Chris. <laughs> you've been able
0: to grow and blossom within the game for one of golf's legendary brands, and you your work has made the game better for many, many players. Thank you for the work you do, and thanks for joining us here on The Range.
1: Ralph, I appreciate it. It's always a good time talking to you and talking about all these things. So it, it means a lot for you to say that. It doesn't feel like I've been around for that long, but when you put pen to paper and start doing the math of how long I've been in the ministry, it's kind of a long time. But It's a blast. And, you know, if you're listening to golf on a podcast, you're as passionate about it as we are. So, you know, hopefully that comes across in everything I do and everything we do, because it's it's just a fun game that people like to be around. And we just want to do our best to continue to evolve and keep the game fresh and strong for the next hundreds of years.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for joining us.
1: Awesome. Thank you.
0: That was Chris Voschel, and in case you couldn't tell, his passion for golf and design is absolute. He loves what he does, and if this show has demonstrated one thing, it's that the greats in design and creation attack their work with a combination of love and expertise, and it comes out in the final product. I always enjoyed talking with Chris, and uh, this was definitely no exception. Fun. Before we go, this past weekend was the Players' Championship, and it provided us with some amazing and insightful stories. First, we heard from Rory McElroy after he missed his second cut in four events that he was chasing speed and distance to keep up with Bryson DeChambeau, and it's not gone so well. The honesty was refreshing, and it was further proof that players will always try to keep up with the longest, no matter the restrictions on equipment. Second, We saw, once again, that Bryson has a role in the upper echelon of the game these days. But we also saw that 47-year-old Lee Westwood can play right alongside with a very different style of game. It's a reminder that Bryson is not looking to change golf. No one is. He's playing his game the way he thinks best suits him. He doesn't point the finger for his failings. Instead, he just keeps working harder to overcome them. As I said last week, with more experience, if he chooses to learn from it and not just the data, he will reach an entirely new stratosphere. The third thing we were reminded of was the strength and will that is inside of the most successful players. It has not been a good year for Justin Thomas. A bad situation early on has proven costly to him. The passing of his grandfather made it even tougher, but there he was going from the cut line after 27 holes to being the player's champion after 72. His round Sunday was nearly flawless, and it's truly amazing to see a player put it all together for everyone to see. And that brings us to the fourth and final note. JT said he wished Tiger Woods had been there so he could rub it in his face a bit. The presence of Tiger Woods affected most of the tour, and his absence is being felt right now. What we are hearing and appreciating is that even in recovery, Tiger is in touch and encouraging many players on tour, he's also keeping it light and making fun. We've always known what a special talent he is, but now we can really start to appreciate what he's meant to the game, and still means to a current crop of fantastic players. He is an amazing gift to us all. I get asked all the time, what is the latest in golf gear for 2021? Well, let me tell you, there is a ton, and the best place to find out is the Golf Spotlight. We are dropping new features all the time, looking at clubs, accessories, footwear, and more. There's a ton to learn about, and it goes well beyond the frontline drivers from each brand. Go to thegolfspotlight.com and click on the YouTube Subscribe button. Then, turn on your notifications so you never miss one of our exclusive features. Believe me, there is a lot to catch up on. Stay up to date on the range by following us on Instagram at thegolfspotlight.com. We're also on Twitter, at Golf Spotlight. We welcome your comments everywhere. You've listened this far, so subscribe to The Range on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or iHeart. We have new shows dropping every Wednesday. That'll do it for this episode of The Range. So let's grab our clubs, hit the course, and engineer our way to a great score. And we'll talk to you next time, right here on The Range.